so yeah, feel free to introduce yourself. I'm Tula Simpson, Associate Professor at the University of Pretoria, where I've been since 2007. My field is history, published uh, in the ANC's Armed Struggle in 2016. And last year, I published History of South Africa from 1902 to the present. Well, thanks so much. And I, I would love to begin for, you know, anyone who's not South African listening, if you if you don't mind first just explaining a little bit about about Mponsoe Sesue as the, the armed uh, paramilitary branch of the ANC. And then to say also how it was formed in the 1960s as a collaboration between the ANC, the South African Communist Party, uh, and became uh, the armed uh, struggle of the ANC against apartheid. Contuasis was formed and launched in 1960. It's formed in 1961 and it's launched in December uh, that year as the military wing of a group of activists linked with the African National Congress and its allies. So its commander in chief, the first one was Nelson Mandela. His deputy was Joe Slovo. Mandela is an ANC member. Slovo is a South African Communist Party member. Their original operations were the perpetration of sabotage within South Africa. Um, the sabotage campaign doesn't work because it leads to increased repression, after which the ANC moves towards guerrilla warfare from 1962 onwards. And the armed struggle is sustained from 1961 until um, 1993, basically, when Mkonto Asizwa is formally disbanded, but it's had an afterlife since then with uh, various veterans associations who've become embedded in ANC internal politics since 1994. Absolutely, and I would love perhaps at the end to my, one of my final questions is about the, the MK Veterans Associations and their role in South African politics today. But to begin, I would like to ask about clarifying the role of MK in the armed struggle. So I think the perception of the anti-apartheid movement in the eyes of a lot of people in the West as it's been sort of whitewashed to an extent is nonviolent. We get sort of a pacifist uh, description of figures like Nelson Mandela, as you just pointed out, you know, actually was the first commander in chief of, of MK. But is it is it possible to perhaps explain a little bit more about the reality of the situation and how the ANC and the, and the SACP and their allies uh, embarked towards armed struggle. What were the what were the contributions that were made to guerrilla warfare? Because of course South Africa didn't end up like Angola or Zimbabwe or Mozambique, and had a relatively at the end of apartheid a sort of peaceful, not entirely peaceful, but a, a transition of power rather than a revolution. So what was MK's contribution to the anti-apartheid movement uh, in practicality? What did it contribute? And of course. Perhaps with that, explaining a little bit about how MK ended up going into exile in the frontline states and ultimately used them as a base for operations in South Africa. Well, um, MK's founding and initial doctrine was influenced by the organization's previous commitment to nonviolence, the organization, I mean, the ANC. So when Nelson Mandela makes the pitch for armed struggle, he's opposed by the ANC president, Chief Latuli. Um, the South African Communist Party leader Moses Katane and the South African Indian Congress leader Monty Naika. These are the three most influential leaders within the ANC-led alliance. What he brings together is a nucleus of activists who feel as though the old commitment to nonviolence is um, 
no longer going to suffice as a method of opposing the government. So what they come up with is a compromise whereby Mandela and Slovo can go ahead and form this uh, military um, unit, but it's going to be formally autonomous from the mother organizations who are going to carry on with nonviolence. It's only in 1962, October 1962, that that fudge um, reaches its expiry date. And at a conference in Labatsa in Botswanaland province, the leaders of the ANC decide to formally adopt violence as their policy. And that commitment to nonviolence is why they choose sabotage rather than all out guerrilla warfare as their initial form of um, opposition. But sabotage is followed by the introduction of the Sabotage Act by the government, which allows penalties, including death, for being involved in sabotage. And that repression leads um, the organization to feel as though its commitment to nonviolence is no longer viable and that they do need to get these. So there's a period in which the ANC is grappling with the continued consequences of its commitment to um, uh, nonviolence. Now, the adaptation, the adaptation to exile is made possible by the growing decolonization movement in Africa because um, the ANC is always hosted by the nearest friendly independent African country. So in 1960s, it is, um, is, it is uh, Tanzania. Um, and then there's a route from Tanzania via Zambia, which is the route of the ANC's first guerrilla infiltration, which is intercepted in 1967, where it fights alongside the Zimbabwe African People's Union. Um, there is a stalemate on that military front because the ANC has no clear territorial route to South Africa because it's all bounded by white minority ruled states. That ends in 1974 with the decolonization of the Portuguese empire. Angola allows the MK to establish large scale bases on its territory and Mozambique provides an infiltration route. And for that reason, the ANC is able to get closer, but these remain very long logistical lines. And this means that the distance between the rear and the front is very extended. And so it's a lot difficult for the ANC to send large units of the kind that existed when uh, Mozambique was able to provide the Zimbabwe African National Union bases just across from Rhodesia's border, or when Angola was able to provide the Southwest Africa People's Organization bases just north of Namibia. That contiguous, bo contiguous border issue is something that had been a precondition for the acceleration of all guerrilla struggles. It's no coincidence in the early 60s that after um, Tanzania becomes independent, Mozambique is able to see an acceleration of its armed struggle. And after the Democratic Republic of Congo becomes independent, then guerrillas are able to activate um, Angola, for example. The ANC is able to get closer to South Africa's borders, but it's never got the possession of a contiguous border over which it can launch operations. And that's a key variable. Right, and, and with that, I think uh, you, you draw it a little bit something that, that I think most people aren't familiar with, which is MK's participation in uh, a lot of the struggles outside of South Africa. So MK, you know, in the 80s plays a big role uh, and provides military support to the MPLA and Angola against UNITA, uh, as well as the South African military. So can you touch on that a little bit more about the role that MK was playing in the revolutionary struggles in the frontline states themselves and how I guess what was the the belief uh, of the ANC and and its allies about 
playing a role in these revolutionary struggles to gain allies in the frontline states against apartheid, how this would help expedite the, the process of apartheid falling if Angola, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe were successfully, uh, uh, there was a successful revolution, they were brought uh, to power against apartheid. Yeah, the arrest of the leaders of the ANC sabotage campaign in the early 60s forces the movement into exile and going into exile embroils the organization in the alliance politics of post-colonial Africa. Um, not just the north and south divide between black and white Africa, but also the east-west divide um, between the Soviets and the West, but even also the Sino-Soviet dispute between the Soviet Union and China. And um, in order to be able to achieve its plan A, its objective A, which is the liberation of South Africa, it has to participate in various joint operations. I've mentioned the one with ZAPU to find a route home um, to fight in the 1980s, the one that you've mentioned alongside the MPLA to preserve its right to have bases um, in that country. Um, all of these conflicts that it becomes embroiled in are a necessary consequence of it having to try to preserve an external base and infiltration routes to be able to advance the struggle within South Africa. And, and I guess in opposition to that, you talk a little bit about some of the, the MK uh, cadres who go in back into South Africa and there are conducting operations and in, in some capacity are um, captured or killed by the apartheid regime. So you talk about Ashley Creel in the book. Um, people are, are sort of familiar, I think, with Solomon Maklangu, uh, due to the, the movie that was released and, and people have become more aware of, of his figure, but kind of generalizing from them, can you talk a bit about the cadres who ventured from the frontline states back into South Africa to try and conduct guerrilla warfare in some capacity within the borders of, of the apartheid regime? Yeah, because of logistical issues, the ANC is never able to maneuver with large units across South Africa's borders. So for all practical purposes, an ANC unit is anything from one to five people, um, with five being quite large for security reasons. Um, and what they are tasked with doing is not waging guerrilla warfare per se, but trying to prepare the way for guerrilla warfare by building a political base in South Africa with military operations being subordinated to that task. So being subordinated to the task of armed propaganda to inspire the masses, raise their confidence in Mkontuasis, where to make them prepared to host larger ANC units. That remains the ANC's operational strategy basically all the way until there's the breakthrough, which leads to the negotiations in 1990. So in terms of the doctrine, in terms of what you read with regards to um, the composition and structure of ANC units. It's one to five person units as a rule until 1990. And um, what they're involved in is trying to prepare the basis for um, guerrilla warfare by depositing armed um, arms caches, by um, establishing dead letter boxes, by in, um, launching prop. Um, operations themselves which are designed to have a mass popular appeal that's basically what's going on as the ANC tries to find its way back um, in the 70s and 80s and and with respect to that with developing uh, and using these MK cadres to a certain extent for propaganda value 
what is the recruitment process like uh, for MK during the apartheid era? Um, how do people find themselves joining MK? And can you walk uh, me through a little bit, you know, how someone would venture uh, to join MK, would have to go in, into exile potentially in one of the, uh, the camps outside of, of South Africa, as well as kind of the, the ideological and operational uh, training that they receive. So how were they teaching uh, MK cadres uh, theoretically about the struggle and also how were they training them for, for military operations, particularly in these areas where you have the MPLA or you have uh, in some cases Cuban soldiers um, who are able to provide some extensive military and, and theoretical training uh, to the cadres. So um, with regards to the first aspect of your question about the recruitment, in the early 60s, it's done by ANC political figures who have not yet been arrested. And so they organize recruits and they take them out of the country. That runs aground when some of these convoys leading out of the country are arrested on the country's borders, and that leads to the arrest of the ANC leadership within the country. The second major phase of joining MK happens in the 1970s as a result of the Soweto uprising, which involves youths in South Africa leaving the country on their own ages, largely to try and join the ANC. And the ANC receives another augmentation of a thousand or so people between 1976 and 1977. Um, but what happens is that the regime starts sending agents outside the country saying they want to join the ANC. So as a result of the ANC not being responsible for recruitment within the country, it opens the organization to infiltration. And that's what leads to the formation of a unit called Mbokodo, the security department of the ANC, which is embroiled in various human rights atrocities. So when you see MK being linked with human rights atrocities in its own camp, it's an attempt by the ANC's um, security organ to try and maintain control of this process. That's basically what's going on in the history of recruitment, and that's why it changes um, as far as that is concerned. What the ANC wants to do increasingly as a result of South African cross-border attacks is to send its cadres outside the country, into the country, to recruit people. So I was remiss when I said the ANC is laying plans for guerrilla warfare, when I limited it to weapons caches, dead letter boxes, and armed propaganda. It also involves recruiting um, people to join Mkonto Asizwe with the idea that these people will stay within the country. And so you don't have all the problems of trying to infiltrate from outside, which leads to people getting arrested on the borders. Um, and also if somebody leaves, uh, if somebody goes missing for a year and they come back, that's a giveaway to the South African security police. So what the ANC wants after a few bruising encounters in the late seventies is to send its cadres from outside into the country to train the population. In terms of the history of the training of ANC members outside the country, it's as diverse as the countries who volunteer to train them. So one of the countries who trained them uh, in the early sixties is Egypt, NASA's Egypt. And they offered a very physical form of training, which the ANC felt didn't prepare them very well for guerrilla warfare. The first group to go abroad went to Mao's China, um, where they were told that it would be possibly be better to receive training in Algeria because Algeria sounds a lot more like South Africa. Nelson Mandela received his first training in Algeria. Um, their lessons of guerrilla warfare, which influenced his ideas on guerrilla warfare a great deal as he's planning that second stage because Mandela goes out of the country in 1962, early months of 1962, on a tour of Africa. And then it's, you know, there's just different countries with different doctrines. I mean, the German Democratic Republic of 
the German Democratic Republic organized people with military intelligence um, training, intelligence officers to enter the country. There were many people formed in Crimea, trained, sorry, in Crimea in what was then the Soviet Union. Um, in the 1970s, their training doctrine was called military combat work, and that was everything from one person James Bond operations behind enemy lines to commanding divisions. It was supposed to, the idea was that they would be trained for basically anything. There's a voyage which they take to Vietnam after the winning of Vietnam's war of independence and national unification, where they speak to um, Vietnamese generals who train them in how you go about building popular bases from guerrilla warfare. And that leads to a shift in the ANC strategy. You've mentioned the Cubans as well. It's, it's all of these it's a mishmash of all of these influences which um, guide how uh, MK has developed. And after 1990, as the ANC is preparing for being um, enlisted in a national army, many of them receive training in India. So it's all over the place, many different doctrines of training. But the doctrines are subordinated to the strategic perspective that I've, I've, you know, I've outlined with regards to the different phases of the struggle. And with that, I think there's been there's been a bit of writing on the presence, of course, of, of the KGB and, and Soviet intelligence uh, within uh, the MK camps and within the ANC in general. I wonder your perspective on that. And also to relate that is there, there's been a bit of writing and you were just mentioning a little bit about the dissatisfaction within the MK camps, um, some of the different rebellions within the camp. So in 1968, um, and then the rebellions in the camps in Angola in 83-84. What precipitates these and what is the role of the, the Soviet presence within the, the anti-apartheid struggle uh, in fostering some dissatisfaction and, and supporting the ANC security apparatus? Um, and how does it lead to conflicts between uh, the, the MK uh, cadres and soldiers and, and leads to them being dissatisfied seeking refuge in, in Kenya at one point. Um, yeah, if you can explain a little bit more about that. The ANC intelligence, counterintelligence organ, security organ is trained by East Germany. So the Stasi influence is more important than the KGB as far as that internal secret police is concerned. Um, it's discussed, I think, in uh, Stephen Ellis's um, book on the ANC in exile, um, his, his more, the more recent of his two ones um, on the topic. With regards to the dissatisfaction, it's basically the fact that because of the issue of the long logistical lines, um, many people spend many years in the camps because there's no secure infiltration route. Paradoxically, amongst those who are infiltrated, because the South African uh, police has infiltrated neighboring countries, many of them get killed um, very soon after crossing the borders. So there's dissatisfaction both about being marooned in the camps and the high casualty rate once people are infiltrated closer to home. Both of these factors contribute to dissatisfaction. They both of the issues highlight the dilemma which the ANC commanders faced in trying to wage an armed struggle in which logistical routes were extremely difficult. That provided the popular base for the rebellion, but as part of the rebellions in the camps, there were also individuals, especially in the 80s, who were um, trained by the um, the, uh, the the apartheid government and sent to infiltrate the ANC. Well, the ANC, as I think is admitted also, exaggerated the significance of the spy issue 
um, in terms of its response to this issue. And uh, I guess just to change um, into focusing more on some of these uh, cadres and specifically, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, Chris Hani and his role as the army commissar of, uh, of MK and also as one of the veterans of one of the first operations uh, in 1967. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about how he joined MK and was also, you know, quite, of course, quite a high ranking official later on in the South African Communist Party, his role in, in this first operation that's initiated and what he, what he did as army uh, commissar and yeah, a little bit more on, on his figure. Uh, Chris Harney is based in the Western Cape. Um, he is a participant in the first camp that the ANC establishes on South African soil at a place called Mamre uh, in the Western Cape. He moves into exile alongside his friend Archie Sibeko after the ANC sends its recruits out of the country. So he's recruited by one of the people who's recruited by is Lux Martin Gugler, who dies in police custody. So this is all related to that story of the early 1960s, where you've got these ANC mid-level veterans who are involved in recruiting people to leave the country. But as the people get arrested trying to leave the country, they get arrested, you know, they, it leads to the organizers, organizers of the underground, many of whom are killed under detention in the early 1960s. Um, so Chris Hani goes into exile. He's one of the first group which is trained in the in Russia and the Ukraine in um, 63, 64. Um, he's involved in the late 60s in reconnoitering infiltration routes through uh, Botswana. He's arrested at least once in um, performing that task. He becomes a member of the Wanki campaign in 1967 in which the ANC tries to build a Ho Chi Minh trail through what is then Rhodesia in South Africa. Um, but uh, he gets arrested uh, whilst going to find water for the rest of the group. He serves a period in a Botswana prison um, uh, because he, they left the country and they got arrested in Botswana because they were trying to circumvent Rhodesia and reach South Africa through Botswana. After he's released, he goes back to Zambia. He finds a hiatus in the armed struggle in which there's no operations. He becomes one of the leading figures in a memorandum which is signed criticizing the um, MK leadership of Joe Modise, who's the MK commander in the late 60s. Um, he is arrested. There's various allegations that he was sentenced to death. He's reprieved. Um, he is rehabilitated in the early 70s. He's part of a mission called Operation J, which tries to return to South Africa by sea from Somalia, which is then a Soviet socialist republic. Um, the boat fails. He's flown to Botswana. Um, he eventually gets to Lesotho, where he's involved in trying to build ANC underground structures. He's perceived to have done well in that task. He's appointed to commissar, which is the number three in the army. Um, and then he becomes chief of staff, which is the number two in the army, um, behind Joe Medisa, who remains the commander throughout the whole period. Uh, he is um, then uh, becomes general secretary of the South African Communist Party um, in the um, early 1990s. And he's, of course, assassinated in April 1993.
And at, at one point, uh, to my understanding, Chris Hani goes to, uh, I, I believe it's in Angola, um, and is discussing with uh, MK Hodges about their their unwillingness to relinquish their weapons and their general insurrection against the the ANC rule and and it seems like the reason that they that they provide to him for for what they're doing is they no longer want to fight against UNITA. Uh, that's no longer really their concern. They're far more interested in, in going back to South Africa and initiating the struggle. But as you're saying, I think it, it's pretty clear to most people that they never really had the operational capacity to do such a thing and to initiate um, an overall you know state of warfare within South Africa. So I wonder, you know, what was the, the resolution of this conflict when Chris Haney approached them? And also to talk a little bit more about some of the, uh, I think people are aware a little bit about some of the disciplinary systems within the, the ANC um, basis for MK, but, you know, for example, the Quadro prison camp um, that was established and, and some of the contradictions within the struggle that emerge um, of, the, the MK cadres resisting the orders that they have of participating in Angola, having a more clear desire to go fight in South Africa and the ANC imposing sort of punishment on them for this. So I wonder what Hani's response was compared to the response of the ANC up to that point, which, which seemed to largely be repression. Yes, Commissar, he's the principal person involved in liaison. It's a very Soviet military doctrine that you have to need to have a Commissar who's representing the soldier's interest and liaising with them with in, in that way. And he's sent to Angola in um, early 1984 to troubleshoot. Um, he persuades them to lay down their arms in um, preparation for a meeting. That meeting is held, but after it's held, ANC security and Angola security come to round up the people who are perceived to be the trouble makers. And those people are um, detained in the Quadro camp. And the dissatisfaction about that leads to a rebellion amongst the other members of the, um, the other people who are discontented. They rebel um, because they view this as being a repression of their demands rather than meeting those demands. Um, and that mess which emerges in Angola, which is basically a civil war within the ANC in the ANC's camps, leads to what's known as the Cubway Conference in 1985, where the organization again tries to troubleshoot. There's basically two national conferences that the ANC in exile organizes. Um, one is um, in the late 60s in Morogoro, and the other is in 1985 in uh, Kabwe, where they try to resolve all of these differences, um, which they have. Um, and that's Hani's role in it. I mean, if you look at the people who eventually come to South Africa after MK troops start returning home, they express their bitterness towards Chris Hani over the way that they feel that he um, played a duplicitous, duplicitous role um, in the suppression of that particular um, revolt. And, and stemming out of that, that sort of civil war within the ANC, you have some changes in the, the structure of uh, MK. Um, so going from in 1969, the Revolutionary Council uh, is changed and, and a political military council is set up. So with this, I, I wonder if you can explain a little bit more about the, how the structure of MK had been operating up to this point in terms of a, a military hierarchy, as you were saying, a sort of Soviet style one whether this was 
functional uh, and how it gets modified and changed to a certain extent uh, after this, uh, these uprisings in the 80s and whether this function uh, ultimately allows for a more uh, democratic internal hierarchy within, the, within MK or whether it still towards the end of the struggle is leading to these kind of disputes within MK itself. There's various operations and there's various attempts at restructuring, but they all revolve around the following issue, which is that the ANC is trying to spark an armed struggle within South Africa. So one of the important debates which they face and how these uh, small units are going to do it is that there's this dilemma in which they feel that armed operations can't really begin until you've got a popular base of people who are willing to accommodate MK cadres, protect them, house them, shelter them, and all the rest of it. But that can only be done if the population have confidence in MK's military capacity. There's all sorts of debates about which should take first priority, building a political underground or engaging in operations to build up MK's military credibility. All of the structuring, restructuring, establishment of new structures, high commands, internal political committees, launch of new operations, all the way up to Operation Vula in the late 1980s. There are attempts to resolve this fundamental issue about how the ANC is going to go about rooting itself as a mass military, political military base on South African soil. Uh, the political military commission, yeah, sorry, the, yeah, the, the PMC in 1983, it is an episode in that longer um, saga. Another theme that you sort of draw in, in your book is the infiltration of MK by uh, Askaris you know, turned uh, against MK by the apartheid government. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the tactics that the apartheid regime was using to infiltrate MK uh, to send Askaris back in after having tortured them and turned them against uh, the struggle? And, and generally, you know, to what extent was the apartheid state heavily monitoring the activities of MK? Is it clear the picture today in you know, the aftermath of, of the classification of documents, uh, what extent uh, the apartheid regime had you know, internal eyes on, on MK and was monitoring the situation and was uh, you know, using intelligence services to, to embed itself? I'm, I'm curious about, yeah. Well, one method of infiltration was basically sending agents out to try and join the ANC. Another one was because of the very long stay in the camps, the conflictual relationship that existed between some MK cadres and their commanders, the fact that they infiltrated home without structures to support them because the political base hasn't been built. You get everything from people being arrested or turning themselves over to the um, police themselves. Um, it's a fallacy to say that in every occasion there had to be extreme forms of torture. Some were willing to be um, accommodated by the security police. Um, so ANC structures in neighboring countries are um, quite heavily infiltrated. Uh, I haven't got the exact statistic at hand, but if you go to Mo Sheikh's book on um, his memoirs, there's something like two out of three operations, I think are lead to very quick interceptions at the border, which in, indicates that the state has got eyes on what's happening within the organization, certainly through Mozambique and Swaziland, which is the ANC's most prolific infiltration route. 
And that actually leads to the ANC in the late 1980s withdrawing its structures from Swaziland because they believe that they have been taken over by, um, by, the, by the state, by the regime, so that the regime basically knows everything that is happening through those countries. And what was the process of, uh, of resolution or I guess sort of uh, internal purging within the, within the MK camps and within the ANC when it was believed that they had been infiltrated? And the investigations were launched by the um, security organ. There's a mass roundup campaign called Operation Shishita in the early 1980s. Um, I deal with that a bit more in the present book than in the previous one, because I simply have more information about it. Um, but you can find the relevant interview, I think, from Mac Maharaj when he's interviewed by Padrego Mali, and I think it's somewhere online, should be accessible online, it certainly was last year, where he speaks about how they were, he was training people to enter South Africa, and one of them was Elliot Mazabuko, whose name is Piper, and um, the 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 group escapes to Botswana and the ANC suspects that they're on their way home to report to their spy bosses because a tape is found in their possession of a training course that Maharaj was providing. It's, it's definitely somewhere online, that interview, which can be found at the MLE interviews. And that's what leads to this huge roundup by the ANC security of the ANC's camps um, and every center where ANC members are in the early 1980s and that's a contribute to the dissatisfaction which will lead to the mutiny in 1984. My understanding is that that's the function of the security organ so these organizations these um these operations to clean up to clean to clean the ANC's house would all be led by the security organization. And uh you know going from this in in uh the 80s and, and progressing afterwards in the aftermath of the 1984 mutiny uh, and with the success of uh, you know, revolutionary movements in Angola, Mozambique, uh, as well, I, I'm curious about the role that MK began to play uh, in the border war and its operations in Namibia. If you can explain a little bit more about, you know, as the, as the uh, Namibian resistance and, and revolution is beginning to take some success and SWAPO is gradually winning to an extent um, leading up to 1990. What role is MK playing in, 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 and what are its relations with SWAPO and how is this leading to ultimately the, the fall of apartheid that, that, that MK will, will play a role in? There's a book by Joseph Kobo called Waiting in the Wing in which he claims that ANC fought alongside SWAPO in the border war, but that um, account has been critiqued by many, even though it's been picked up by a couple of South African journal, um, generals, including um, Yanni Heldenhuis, who's the founder of the 32 Battalion. But the general understanding, as I see it, is that um, there was not a joint operation between the two organizations. Although if you read um, Ronnie Castrol's Armed and Dangerous, there's a section in there about how ANC intelligence was involved in monitoring South African operations. So it's entirely possible that there was some collaboration, um, but it's not the main thrust of um, the ANC's activity. Uh, the ANC remains a solidarity organization with SWAPO. At various stages, the ANC's camps are attacked. 
um, by the South African government, the Angolan camps, there's a Novo Katenge um, attack and there's a poisoning as well, um, which leads to repression. I, I think that that's the, that's what I know about the implication in the um, border war in Angola. And so as uh, uh, the early 1990s are uh, leading ultimately to uh, the collapse or the transition uh, from, from apartheid, how does NK, uh, you know, get demilitarized, I guess, if you can put it that way, um, from its role as a, a militant group and guerrilla warfare group? And begin to play a role in ANC politics as the ANC itself demilitarizes to an extent and becomes a political faction. And how do MK officers start to play a role in the new South African military uh, after apartheid has, has ended? And I, I think perhaps then you know this will lead ultimately to some final questions about the role of MK today, uh, as well as the relationship between MK and the ANC today. Well, after the ANC is unbanned, the organization is involved in a township war with the Encarta Freedom Party. And as MK members are infiltrated from abroad, many of them become enrolled in this war. That is the most violent phase of the ANC's armed struggle. But the ANC eventually prevails in the struggle against Encarta for the control of the townships to the extent that in the 94 elections, the campaigning witnesses no-go areas because the ANC has established strongholds there. So it's superficial to say that because the ANC never marched militarily into Pretoria with large-scale battalions, there were no important victories. It wins a number of very important um, strategic victories. I mentioned the training in um, India for MK's integration into the um, armed struggle sorry, into the post-1994 military. One of the important post-1994 events was whether MK, after the ANC's release, should disband or not. And FW de Klerk insists on that, whilst the um, ANC insists that it will only do that once an agreement has been reached for the formation of a new national army. Um, the ANC prevails, and so the uh, MK only formally disbands in December 1993, after which it's brought into the integration process for a new um, South African National Defence Force, and that's the military um, that we've had um, since uh, May 1994. Um, so what were the other aspects? What were the other strings to your question? Well, yeah, going from there, I'm curious now, you know, as MK is integrated into the military, the relationship, of course, I think people are, are quite familiar with some of the uh, recent activities of MK veterans uh, demanding their pensions and taking the defense minister hostage. And so, you know, the, that complicated relationship with the ANC. And I, I wonder if you can provide more, more insight into that and how uh, MK still relates to the ANC. It, it seems like the ANC utilizes MK to an extent for political purposes um, and really still for propaganda to a large extent to, to show the revolutionary fighters and the revolutionary struggle. But just how how complicated is the relationship still between the ANC and MK today? Um, to what extent is is MK actually or MK veterans actually playing a role 
in ANC politics and, and in the military, or is it still, you know, just a symbolic presentation of them during election season? There's various phases in this. I think the first one is that in the early 1990s, after the ANC's unbanned, many of its erstwhile international funders consider that the job is done and the Soviet Union basically collapses. So the ANC had established a state in exile, which is basically sustained by foreign funding. That's what pays for MK. So at the moment of liberation, however, this state in exile basically collapses and there's no means of supporting former MK veterans. And so there's actually an MK conference, which is held more than one in the early 1990s about how MK veterans are going to be supported after liberation. The explanation that is eventually um, reached at one of these conferences is that the, nothing can be done until after liberation where we're going to look after our veterans. And there's all sorts of promises made that um, the veterans are going to be looked after. This is a significant um, addition to the ANC's welfare budget, and it creates all sorts of questions about who is the first in line. I mean, is it going to be the suffering masses of South Africa, or is it going to be the veterans? And it becomes, there's all sorts of discontent which is created there, not least because many of the former commanders are absorbed in government positions, in cabinet, uh, in the military, and some aren't. So there's a core of ANC members who believe we fought for the country and we've been sidelined, we're living in poverty, there's all sorts of proto-class divides within the organization, but they become an important mobilizing base for dissatisfied ANC leaders. And what you have by the second decade of freedom in the first decade of the 21st century is growing factions within the ANC over resources to patronage. Um, and that really erupts in the late and Becky period. And veteran politics becomes inscribed in these internal conflicts. The MK Military Veterans Association um, is becomes part of the pro-Zuma wing. Uh, the Department of Defense, after he wins, becomes renamed the Department of Defense and Military Veterans. All sorts of schemes are developed to look after veterans specifically, special pensions, access to tenders, that also creates an entitlement uh, or sense of entitlement um, on the national fiscus and further demands, which veterans, which contracts, which tenders, that becomes an area of contestation as well within the organization. And there's all sorts of, um, once you're in, involved in ANC's internal politics, you can start setting your price, which can be far above what veterans of other conflicts in other countries who are not as politically connected as the MK Military Veterans Association are. Um, there is tangible um, signs that under the Zuma era, many in the MK MVA want to position themselves as a sort of paramilitary war veterans force on the uh, Zimbabwean model. As Zuma loses popularity, there's the formation of another veterans organization which calls itself the authentic veterans organization. In other words, the people who are not in, incorporated into ANC structures, who are not generals, are generally the people who are considered not to have done very well in the war in terms of their military performance, to have they stayed in the camps because they were never sent to the front line, because they were never viewed as being suitable for those kind of operational um, uh, procedures, or they were part of the massive enrollment of MK when MK tried to swell its numbers ahead of being enrolled in the National Defense Force. So many of the people in the Military Veterans Association who are not incorporated into government are the ones who are considered by the organization not to have been the best cadres. So there's a sort of condescension and contempt, which is um, 
extended by many of the so-called authentic veterans, the ones who actually led operations, who actually commanded units towards those who are the foot soldiers of this new movement. Like any process, it's extremely complex. There's many different phases. I've mentioned a few of them and some of the key dynamics, but those are some of the ingredients in the um, veteran politics mix. And I guess my last question would be the, the historical legacy of, of MK in South Africa today. And, and perhaps you can, it's difficult, I guess, to address, but the contradiction between MK being extolled to a certain extent politically and being, you know, emphasized as the, the revolutionary group. And then, you know, at the same time, we've been commenting a little bit throughout um, some of the decisions of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, you know, declaring MK guilty of violations of, of the Geneva Convention and uh, declaring, for example, the Durban um, beach bombing as a, uh, a violation of human rights. So how do you have these sort of contradictory perspectives from post-apartheid society of, on the one hand, trying to contradict and, and condemn some of the, um, the failures of MK, uh, and, and in, in some cases even going so far as condemning uh, many of its operations and, and its bombings, uh, as being targeted against civilians, and at the same time, a general popular remembering of the struggle and of MK as a revolutionary group, one that you know deserves uh, its veterans deserve support, and that this contestation between authenticity, of course, as you as you just pointed out, uh, who is an authentic revolutionary, uh, perhaps plays a role in that, and I think that leads to. Another part of the question, which is something you know, a lot of people have commented on, of course, but to what extent the, the high up ANC figures like Nelson Mandela uh, knew about the operations and knew about the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, rules and restrictions and repression within the, the MK camps. And you know, to what extent in South African society today, Nelson Mandela and the other ANC figures are, are perhaps blamed or, or, you know, what is their level of culpability in post-apartheid society for uh, some of the, the misdeeds within the MK camps? Well, regards to the last one, the ANC on more than one occasion has claimed collective responsibility for um, its uh, operations of its cadres. And if everybody's responsible, then nobody in particular is responsible. And so that's as a way of diminishing individual accountability for the acts. With regards to the legacy and how it will be remembered, I think it very much depends on the ANC's fortunes and whether and how long it's able to sustain the vision of one struggle, one leadership, one movement, and this sort of monolithic understanding of the anti-apartheid struggle. I do think that we are in for a more pluralistic period of South African politics in which the merits of the ANC liberation are going to be judged against the record of the party in power. Um, and that will lead to various sorts of historical um, alignments. And so the idea that if you meet an MK veteran, then you owe him a huge debt, you know, there's the idea of how much have we lost as a result of veteran politics and its um, embeddedment in um, corruption. Also various things. I mean, part of the debt is supposed to be 
how much South Africans owe to various foreign countries who provided the ANC with support. That is beginning to fray at the seams in many of the townships with people saying, we actually don't owe you anything as far as foreign immigrants are concerned. And all of these dynamics uh, in this sort of zeitgeist will affect how the history is affected. But I do think that um, the attempt to canonize um, MK in a way in which many Western countries canonize the veterans of the world wars, I don't think that's going to be sustainable. I do think there's going to be an increasing critique of the merits of the ANC's version of liberation as the country moves towards a sort of second iteration, a second um, authorship of uh, its attempts to build a free society. Well, thank you so much, Professor Simpson, for this and, and great answers and uh, really appreciated talking to you on this subject. Um, you know, if you would like uh, in, in the last uh, couple of minutes or so, any book recommendations, of course, your book uh, is highly recommended and, and your multiple books that you've written, but throughout you've alluded to some other texts. So I wonder if you have some recommendations that are best if people want to read further on the subject and, and learn more about the, the armed struggle in South Africa and MK. Yeah, for the relationship with the Soviet Union, Vladimir Shubin's book is the best. Mm -hmm. um, for the ANC in Angola, there's a book by Nadia Mangesi that called the Maputa Connection, which is very good. Um, on There's a book called Voices from the Underground. I think it's edited by Shirley Gunn. It's got a lot of MK veterans there. There's an overview of the struggle in concise form, Howard Burrell's MK, the ANC's armed struggle, published in um, 1990. I think it's 77 pages or something, but it's a very good bare, bare bones overview as far as that is concerned. From the ANC's perspective, I still think available online, there's its submission to the TRC, which provides its view of the armed struggle and an overview of its structures. Um, in terms of, I don't know, it depends on what you want. <laughs> I mean, as far as Angola is concerned, I think there's a book called Mbokado by Moezi Twala, which is from a leader of the mutiny. There's Inside Quattro, which is edited by Paul Trujillo, which provides other perspectives from veterans. Um, James Ngulu um, has got a book which focuses a lot on the mutiny as well. Um, yeah, there's, 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 there's quite a bit. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations and, and for speaking with me and taking some time. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Have for a great rest of your day. Thanks. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.